Please turn with me as you're being seated to Revelation chapter 4. I'm covering two chapters this morning, Revelation chapters 4 and 5. When I was seven years old, a new game show came on TV. It's called The Price is Right. And uh, Bob Barker hosted that for about 35 years. And I, honestly, I wasn't really that interested in the price of milk or, you know, the other items, that kind of thing. But what I liked was when somebody had to pick a door, right? And they would pick a door and they'd get a prize. And if the prize was junky, it was kind of obvious. You want to see what's behind the next door. But honestly, for me, I didn't care if it was a junky prize or a great prize. I, I, was, I kept thinking, why wouldn't you want to see what's behind the next door, right? I mean, this is, it's a game show. This isn't your life. I mean, hopefully you didn't quit your job to join this in your game show, right? Or you think that what you win on the game show is going to set you up for retirement. So pick the next door, man. Let's see. Let's take a risk. Don't play it safe. At least that's how I felt about it. I always want to know what's behind that next door. Now, in spiritual terms, I ran across a quote by C.S. Lewis several years ago that I thought kind of encapsulates this idea. He wrote it in a short book. It's called The Pilgrim's Regress. And he said this, this desire, meaning uh, this desire to have more of God, this desire, in a sense, to see what's behind the next door. He says, this desire continues to be prized and even to be preferred to anything else in the world by those who have once felt it. They've seen what's behind one door. They want to see what's behind the next. This hunger is better than any fullness. This poverty better than all other wealth. Revelation chapter 1 John saw what was behind door number one, right? He, he had lived with Jesus for three years. He knew Jesus well. He was the beloved disciple. He had shared meals with Jesus, slept out under the stars with Jesus, heard Jesus preach and teach and heal. And yet when he went through that first door and Jesus revealed himself in his glory in heaven, just blew John away and John said to himself, I got to have more of that. What's behind door number two? In Revelation four and five, Jesus opens the second door. He opens a doorway into heaven and he invites John. He says, John, why don't you come up here and see what's behind this next door? So this morning we're going to go with John behind door number two, Revelation 4 through 5, and see a little bit more, another glimpse of what eternity holds for us. I want you to read with me chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that is the voice of the Son of God, which I had heard, the one that was like a sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. What John will notice first is that in heaven... Everybody's focused on the throne. Okay? All of heaven is oriented toward the throne. All of heaven is worshiping before the throne. This last week, my in-laws came into town. And I always enjoy it when they come in. Uh, it's also a little bit uh, intimidating and awkward in a sense that uh, they're gardeners and I'm not. <laughs> when I say they're gardeners, they have this, in, in Oklahoma, they have this really nice about two-acre lawn. It's all, it looks like a golf course, the way it's cut. 
and they've got plantings here and there. It's really beautiful. Uh, and when I say they're, they're gardeners, right, they're not just members of the Tulsa Iris Society. My father-in-law was the president of the Tulsa Iris Society, right? And so for any of you who have come to my house before, you know I'm not a gardener, right? I've never won the Yard of the Month Club. I don't, I don't care. I don't even try to win that. My, my plantings out front are, I've got weeds, and I don't say that there are weeds in my garden. It's weeds. It is weeds, right? It is weeds. A couple of years ago, it was just so bad. I tore everything out, and I never got around to putting anything back in, and so I've got this one lonely crepe myrtle <laughs> standing there, and then it's just weeds, right? I literally actually have a neighbor um, he's, he's a pastor too, but his undergrad was in landscape design. And one day he drove by, I saw him pause, and then he pulled in my driveway and he said, could I, would it, would you, could, would, would it feel awkward? Could I draw a plan for you, for your yard? And I go, man, have at it. As long as it involves no maintenance, pulling no weeds, right? That's just not my deal. Okay. So when my father-in-law comes, I was like, uh, it's a little awkward, you know. And what he has told me year after year after year, he said, so what you got to have, Brian, is you got to have a focal point, right? A focal point. If you go to his yard, there, there's a focal point. Like there's a theme, right? A theme for this section of the yard and a theme for this section. So something that draws your eye in and then you enjoy that part of the yard. And so, you know, I'm like, well, my theme is nature, right? My theme is, <laughs> my theme is weeds. This is my theme. I don't have a theme. Heaven has a theme. It's got a focal point. It's the throne. The center, the focal point. In fact, if you read Revelation 4 and 5, you'll understand that everything is described in relationship to the throne. In proximity to the throne. It's under the throne, around the throne, before the throne. But there's just one who's sitting on the throne. And John's eyes are immediately drawn to him. Notice again how he describes him. Verse 3. It says, he who is sitting was like a jasper stone, like a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. See, he doesn't actually describe God himself. He describes what, what radiates from God. As near as I can tell, there are actually four descriptions in the Bible of the throne room of God. There's one in uh, Isaiah 6, Daniel 7, this one here in Revelation 4 and 5, and then Ezekiel chapter 1. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. And I want you to observe with me that there are several features of the throne room of God that are consistent. At the center, there's always the throne. So Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 26. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne. Like lapis lazuli in appearance... And on that which resembled a throne, high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. So in the center is the throne. And surrounding the throne in the vision, in Revelation, and Ezekiel, there is a, a rainbow. Uh, 
All of light is there. And it's beautiful. It's glorious, Ezekiel says. And remember, glory means literally something that's heavy or weighty, but it also means something that is utterly and absolutely beautiful. Now, when you hear of a rainbow in Scripture, what do you think of? You should think of Noah. You should think of that, that first rainbow. You should think of destruction and deliverance. Because in Noah's day, what was happening was that the earth was becoming more and more and more corrupt, so much so that men and women were destroying themselves and they were destroying earth. And so God stepped into discipline in order to redeem and protect. In other words, he didn't destroy because he hated earth and wanted to remove earth uh, fully and completely or that he hated mankind and wanted to remove mankind. He stepped in and disciplined and judged so that he could protect and preserve and rescue and redeem earth and mankind. And so after the flood, God said, now look up into the sky and you will see a rainbow and that rainbow will remind you that I have promised that my intention is not to destroy, my intention is to deliver. And that rainbow will constantly remind you of that fact. Now, John is about to have a revelation opened up to him in chapter 6 through 19 that is a revelation of destruction. But the point of the destruction is not that God hates earth or hates mankind. It's that mankind is once again becoming so corrupt and destroying God's creation that God has to intervene in order to deliver. And so the first thing that John notices in his vision is that surrounding the throne is a visual image of the faithfulness of God. God always keeps his word. And when God begins to open up this revelation and show destruction, it's for the purpose of deliverance. So we have a throne. Surrounding the throne, there is a rainbow. And below the throne, there is a sea of glass. Verse 22 of chapter 1 in Ezekiel. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. In other words, there's a throne and below the throne spread out and separating heaven from everything else and the throne room of God from everything else, there's this expanse. It it seems like a sea or water, but it's so clear, so pure, so undisturbed that maybe it's crystal. Turn back to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 5. Notice how John describes it. He says, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, which we said are not seven holy spirits, but a metaphor of the perfection of the knowledge of God's spirit. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. When Moses was called up to the top of Mount Sinai, he was told, bring, bring Aaron and bring Aaron's sons, who are the, the, the priests and the high priest. Bring the 70 elders. I want you to enter into fellowship with me. And this is what they saw in the book of Exodus. Moses went up with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. It's It's beautiful. It's glorious. What they're gazing into is God's home. And in his home, at the center, there's a throne because from from this place, God rules. But God's home with the throne 
is also a temple. Because this is the place in which God is worshipped. And everyone worships him and no one withholds worship. In fact, God is surrounded in worship. Read with me again verse 6, Revelation 4. Before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf. The third creature had the face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Wow, that's unusual, isn't it? Surrounding the throne are worshipers. And first we see four worshipers. They are living creatures, unlike anything we've ever seen upon earth. And from time to time, I have been asked by children, not just my own kids, but other kids, will there be animals in heaven? You've heard that question before? Will there be animals in heaven? Guess what? There, there are animals in heaven. You know, and I've heard some kind of Stiff adults say, well, no, those aren't really animals. Those are angels, right? But I don't think they're angels because in a couple chapters, John's going to see angels. And you know what he calls the angels? Angels. He calls the angels. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. <laughs> These aren't angels. They are living creatures. Another question that I'm asked from time to time is, will the animals be able to talk? Guess what? The animals are talking. Now, I don't know if your cat will be with you and talking to you, but I do know that there will be animals in heaven and that some of them will speak. What are they? <laughs> Again, I have no idea. There's no creature on earth like this. They're, they're, they're large and they're, they're terrible and beautiful all at the same time. And kids, lots of adults have written page after page after page trying to tell us what these animals are, but you know, nobody knows what these animals are. Nobody knows. Never seen them before. What's important is not what they are, but what they're doing. What is it they're doing? Chapter 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. These four living creatures were made by God for one reason, to worship him. And so day and night, forever and ever, they don't stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. God is separate. He is unique. He is different. He is morally and utterly pure in every respect. He is the Lord God Almighty. That is, he is the all-powerful one. He is the sovereign. There's just one sitting on the throne, and it's God. He was and he is and he is to come. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is forever. And day and night, these creatures spend all of their time, they are completely and utterly occupied with praising God for his attributes, who he is, in and of himself, the self-existent, unique God sitting on the throne. And they're not alone. Surrounding the throne, there are 24 elders. Read with me in verse 4, Revelation 4, verse 4. Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns were on their head. Again, who, who are these men? Kids, adults write page after page after page trying to tell us they know who these people are. We don't know who these people are. We don't know. Probably the best theory is that they are 12 apostles 
of the church and 12 elders of the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, 12 leaders from the church under the new covenant and 12 leaders from Israel from under the old covenant. That is, the people of the old covenant and the people of the new covenant combined into one people of God surrounding the throne representing all peoples and all generations. And what's important is not who they are, but what they're doing. Read with me in chapter 4, verse 9. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever, and they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and because of your will they existed, and they were created. The four living creatures will be praising God forever and ever because of who God is, God's attributes. He's holy. He's almighty. He's eternal. The elders will be praising God because he is the one who created and thus has authority over all things. And the creatures and the elders will join together, and they will be joined by angels. Turn to chapter 5 and verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of the angels was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. In other words, what John does is he takes the, the, the largest word that describes a number in Greek. And then he multiplies that by itself. He says, biggest number times biggest number times biggest number times biggest number That's how many angels there were. In other words, I could count the four living creatures and I could count the elders. But when I looked at the angels, there was just no end to them. They just went on and on and on as far as I could possibly see. And what are the angels doing? They are saying with a loud voice. And remember, as we said last week, heaven won't always be a quiet place. This heavenly choir that is too numerous to count Every single individual angel among them will be screaming out in their loudest voices, praise to God. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And if that weren't enough, every created thing will join in. Every created thing in heaven, on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, that is the Father, and to the Lamb, that is the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, that's right, true, true. And the elders fell down and worshiped forever and ever, forever and ever. Heaven is a busy place. Heaven is is not angels floating on clouds with harps, bored out of their skulls. Heaven is busy. Heaven is active. In fact, in Ezekiel, those living creatures, we're told, are constantly on the move. They have wheels inside and out, like a gyroscope almost. They're constantly ready to go any direction in every direction because they're bearing up the throne room of God. And God never leaves his throne. God is on his throne now. God has always been on his throne. God never leaves his throne. When God goes somewhere, he goes with his throne, on his throne. Remember, when God came down to meet with Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders, he came down with his throne. He brought heaven to earth. 
And so when they looked up, they were looking through that sea of glass because they were looking up through the footstool of God, past the feet of God, to the throne of God, because God never leaves his throne. No one else sits on his throne, just God. And God never leaves. It's never unoccupied. Or in other words, when man ascends as high as man can go, God still must come down. It says in Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God? It's rhetorical. The answer is no one. The one who's enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on earth. God must come down. And when God comes down, God is on his throne. And in heaven, everything is described in terms of its orientation to the throne. The throne is center. No one else is on the throne. Heaven is theocentric. The most fundamental question of our lives is where are we in relationship to that throne? Okay? Where are we in relationship to that throne? Because that is ultimately the only throne that counts in all of the universe. And you may say, well, I think maybe perhaps I'm running away from that throne. I don't want that throne ruling in my life. Or maybe you're trying to sit on that throne yourself. Or maybe you're trying to put something or someone up on that throne. Or maybe you're bending your knee before that throne. And you're surrendering everything in submission and honor and glory to that throne. But you know, ultimately nothing else in your life matters. But that question, where are you in relationship to that throne? If God is the center of your life, your life will make sense. You'll have meaning and purpose even in the midst of hardship. You'll have strength and energy and joy and power in good times and in bad when your life is oriented properly toward that throne. If anything else is on that throne or you're trying to put yourself on that throne, you know, life just simply will not make sense. In fact, that's the story of human history. Earth is, is not aligned with heaven. Earth is, is misaligned with heaven, and that is why there is tragedy and heartache and suffering on earth, because earth is not aligned with heaven. And earth needs to be aligned with heaven, and you need to be aligned with heaven, and I need to be aligned with heaven, because that is how life works. You want to create misery for yourself, attempt to remove God from his throne. He will not budge. All of heaven understands that, and so all of heaven is oriented around God. But earth is in rebellion against God. Read with me in chapter 5, Revelation and verse 1. I saw in the right hand, that is the hand of strength and power, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. What I want you to notice first is that it's actually not a book. Okay? My translation says book, and I read book, and I think something like this. It's not a book. It's a scroll. It's a scroll that's in the form of a contract. And the terms of the contract are written on the inside of the scroll. 
And then that scroll was rolled up and it was sealed. It was rolled a little bit more. It was sealed. It was rolled. It was sealed. It was rolled and sealed seven times. And on the outside of that scroll is a summary of the contract. So when it was pulled out, it could be identified without the seal being broken. It has been described as a scroll that just basically the destiny of the earth. One author wrote this. Said the purpose for opening the scroll is not so that it can be read, but so that the eschatological or end times events can begin to take place. That is, the content of the scroll is Revelation 6 through 19 and 20 through 22. The content of the scroll is the events through which God will reclaim earth for himself and will realign earth with heaven. Heaven is already aligned with the throne room of God. All of heaven is worshiping God, but earth is out of line. And so Revelation 6 through 19, the content of this scroll is the realignment. A seal will be broken. And then another seal, seven seals. The seventh seal will be seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet will be seven bowls. And all these experiences will be designed to bring discipline on the earth so that God can deliver the earth. Because God intended the earth to be ruled over and reigned by mankind, but mankind is in rebellion against God. And so God has to step in and he's got to realign earth with heaven. That's the content of the scroll. And what the book of Revelation is about, in a sense, is it's written like a a drama. It's written like a play with multiple acts. Remember, John wasn't transported into the future John remained in his present day, but he was taken by the Spirit to see a vision, or in a sense to see a drama played out before him. On stage right are scenes in heaven, and heaven is opened up before him. A door opens up, and he glances into heaven, and he he sees what's transpiring in heaven. And then he'll move stage left, which is scenes upon earth. Heaven will make a declaration of what should transpire on earth and God will send angels and ultimately he'll send the sun. And so John is moving back and forth between scenes in heaven and on earth. And periodically, heaven will cry out and they'll say, time out, we need an intermission, right? We need an interlude. This is so amazing and so wonderful. Can we just pause for a moment of silence? Or can we just pause to worship and catch our breath? Okay, let's see what's next. And we'll move back to a scene upon earth and back to a scene upon heaven. And we'll move back and forth. In other words, this drama is being played out before John, but John's not exactly sure how it's going to play out or what's going to play out. Some have described this scroll as the destiny of earth. Others have described it as the title deed for earth. That is, earth is in rebellion against God. It was handed, that title deed was handed to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And rule and reign over all of creation in relationship to me and in relationship to one another. Submission to my throne, honoring one another, rule and reign. But Adam took that title deed to earth and what did he do? He abdicated his authority and he handed it to Satan. And so now the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, right? It's all in rebellion against God. The world system, the world order is in rebellion against God. That scroll is the title deed. Who will take it back? Who will break the seals? Who will open it up so that God can reclaim earth for his own honor and glory? Read with me again in verse 3, chapter 5. Let's read verse 2 again. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll 
to, to break that first seal and, 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 and open it up and begin to reclaim earth for God. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or the scroll or to look into it. How sad is that? How sad is that? John looks out and he sees four living creatures and they're not worthy. He sees the 24 elders and they're not worthy. He sees angel after angel after angel after myriads, countless angels. He looks out and he hears the choir being joined in from those who are under the earth and on the earth and in the heavens. And there is not a single person who's worthy to take the scroll. And what does John do? Verse four. Then I began to weep greatly. And literally, I was weeping and weeping and weeping. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to even look into it. So I wept. Because I didn't know how the story would play out. I just knew that God needed to reclaim earth for his glory, but no one could get it going. No one could start that process. And so John wept. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. There is one worthy to realign earth with heaven. It is the lion who is from the tribe of Judah. One is worthy to sit on the throne. One is worthy to take the scroll. Keep your place here in Revelation and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 21. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, the first man, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and the Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign, that is the son, he must reign until he has put all his enemies in subjection under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, that is the father, is accepted who put all things in subjection to the son. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God, the Father, may be all in all, and there will be just one sitting on the throne, and it is God alone. This is a statement of absolute power. God will send his Son, and his Son will conquer all enemies, and we will talk about this in detail next week, and then he will take that kingdom and he will deliver it up to the Father. I mean, this is the, the, the lion who, who roars, the lion from the tribe of Judah who reclaims earth on behalf of God. So the question is, why does this lion show up in the vision as a lamb? 
As John is told by the elder, there there is a lion from the tribe of Judah. He is worthy to take the scroll. And so John looks and he looks out and, and what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Why does he see a lamb first? Well, he's told. Because the son was willing to be a lamb first before being a lion, he is qualified because he gave himself. Read with me. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals because you were slain and because you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And what will they do? They will reign upon the earth. Let me explain it a little differently. God could have reclaimed earth for himself. He could have realigned earth with heaven. He could have wiped out all of his enemies Just by speaking a word. You enemies of mine are dead. Jesus didn't have to go to the cross to realign earth with heaven. God could have just spoken and reclaimed earth for himself. He could have wiped out all of his enemies and there would be no resistance and all who remained would be worshiping God. But if he had done that, if Christ had not gone to the cross, then he couldn't have purchased for God men and women who could rule and reign with Jesus Christ on God's behalf. Remember, as Jesus was about to go to the cross, his disciples were not excited about that prospect. And Jesus interrupted them and he said, do you not realize That at this moment, I could call thousands of angels. I've seen them. I've been there. I've been in the presence of God. I've seen myriads and myriads of angels. In fact, I created them. Too numerous for you to count, but I know them all by name. And if I say, come and rescue me, I will be rescued. Rome, Rome, it's armies, it's nothing. I could wipe out all of God's enemies in this moment, but it's necessary. I must go to the cross. I must first be the lamb that was slain so that I can purchase men and women who are broken in their sin so that they can be realigned with God's kingdom because I've removed the debt of their sin. Then they will be my brothers and sisters. Then they will be God's sons and daughters. And then they can reign and rule with me upon the earth. So I must first be a lamb, then I'll be a lion. Right? I love Romans, Revelation 4 and 5. It's probably my favorite passage in all of the Bible because it moves us from Genesis 1 creation through the fall and all of the brokenness of human history to the hope that we have that Jesus will return and he will set all things right. And all of earth will once again be reoriented and realigned with heaven and all will be before the throne of God worshiping. But first, the lion had to become a lamb because God made earth for man. God made earth a good place so that we could live here and reflect the glory of God and represent God and rule and reign on behalf of God in intimacy with God and in relationship with one another. Psalm 115 verse 16 says this, The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. 
The heavens are already aligned with God. They're already properly oriented toward the throne. But earth he has given to the sons of men, and earth, earth's rule and reign has been abdicated because of our sin. And so one came to set things right. The church, he hasn't set everything right yet, has he? Hey, we still suffer. We still struggle. We still see evil in the world. Things are not all right. What are we to do as we wait? As we wait, we are to be this foretaste, this foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. As we align our lives with God, as we live in relationship with one another, and we live properly oriented toward the throne, we're a foretaste or a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God on earth. So how do we live that out? Okay, as I make this last point, if I could have the men go back and prepare for communion, we're going to look at one final point from Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. Would you read with me there? Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. When the lamb that was slain had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one of them holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. That incense is the prayers of the saints. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? It didn't actually first come up in the book of Revelation. See it also in the book of Psalms, Psalm 141. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands is the evening offering. In other words, when we, when we pray, when we pray consistent with, with the will of God, God says, that's like incense coming up before me and it has this, this pleasant association to my heart. Sometimes when I go home, Tristy will have a, a candle lit. I'll walk in the house and I'm, I'm used to the visual surroundings. So what strikes me first is how it smells and it has this pleasant association of my home where I'll walk in and I'll smell her perfume, which has even more pleasant associations for me. It's a, it's a smell that reminds me of something. When God receives the prayers of his saints, there, there's this wonderful association. What are those prayers? What are the prayers that come up into the presence of God to which God goes, ah, yes. Do you know you know the content of those prayers? We actually looked at one of them last week. Very end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. The lamb who became the lion, the son of God, testifies to these things and he says this, yes, I'm coming quickly. And then John prays and he starts his prayer with amen. And then he fills out his prayer, which is come quickly, Lord. Lord, come quickly, realign earth with heaven because when you do so, all will be set right. That's the prayer that rises before God and is like a, a fragrant aroma, like incense before him when God's people are aligning themselves with him and they're calling upon earth to be right with heaven. Or if I can put it in other terms, it's actually the prayer that has been prayed more than any other prayer in all of church history, in every language and in every place. It's the most common prayer. You know it by heart, I promise you. But often the church prays it and they don't really realize what they're praying. It goes like this. Our Father who is in heaven, where everyone is properly aligned to the throne and all, all are surrounding the throne and worshiping. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or exalted, lifted up and separate be your attributes, your activities, all that you are. May it be exalted and, and set apart as holy. Your kingdom come. 
Your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. That's the prayer that God always hears, the, God, the prayer that God always responds to as if it's a, a pleasing aroma. It's the prayer of God's people saying, yes, Lord, come. Not my will, but yours be done. So as men come forward in service in just a moment, I want you to be thinking about one thing, one question, and it is this. Where are you in relationship to the throne of God? Are you, are you running from God's throne? Are you resisting it? Are you replacing God on his throne? Are you putting someone or something else up there? Are you bending your knee? Saying, God, you alone be exalted. Is the men's service, I want you to think about that one question. Where are you in relationship to the throne of God? Pray. Father, thank you for refreshing our vision of your throne. I thank you for the reminder that you are seated, that you never leave that seat, that we never need to, to fear and panic, that you are always in control. Thank you, Father, for the reminder that you do not share that seat with another, and that our lives find meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment when we are turned toward you in worship. Father, I pray that uh, this week, maybe in some new and fresh way, that you would reorient our lives toward your throne. And we worship you with a fresh vision of your greatness and your power and your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.